Okay, we have microphones because we record this. Um, this goes on the podcast as well. If you have a question, um, and we haven't had an ABF now for how many weeks? Three. So open up for questions this week, last week, week before. We're basically all the way back to Daniel's message. I won't go that far back, but questions, uh, thoughts. Yes, Greg Sweet. Take me a minute to to uh, set up my question, but you, you made a compelling argument that the call to discipleship was equal to call to salvation. It's my understanding, of course, that salvation is a, an event, uh, something that happens yeah. spont or in, instantaneously. Uh, so I'm uh, the the question I guess I have is. So if somebody came to my house, I'm an unbeliever, I don't know anything spiritually, and convinces me uh, through Scripture that Jesus is, is Lord and, and, and has died for me, uh -huh. I can understand easily coming to understand that and to, to place my, my trust in Jesus Christ. What I'm having a hard time understanding is how I would have the presence to under to be able to say I then will defer everything else in my life to this Jesus I just learned about sure great question what is the earliest Christian creed or statement of faith relating to the gospel in Jesus I would argue it's Jesus is Lord so first John can say, sorry, Greg, first John can say, no one can say, except by the Spirit of God, that Jesus is Lord. And anyone who says Jesus is accursed is not from God. Um, so the earliest Christian confession is Jesus is kurios, Lord, which you can either take to mean God or master. The word could be go either way. And I'd, I'd say that bound up in that is an assumption of the relationship you're entering into. I mean, here's, a, here's a simple way I put it, Greg. Do you think it's optional to obey and follow Christ? Someone says, yes, I'd say that you don't think he's God. You don't understand what you mean when you say God. It's hard for us Westerners because we're not used to having lords and sovereigns and potentates and kings. We're used to voting and, you know, all of that stuff. But I think for anyone from any of those cultures to say he is my God doesn't just mean he does things for me, right? It involves some sort of... Um, me relating to him properly, which is why I tried to define this earlier as being reconciled. That means to enter your right relationship. What is that relationship? That's precisely what I think Jesus is, is laying out here. So my concern would be for someone who thinks, Jesus is offering to forgive me if I will ask him to, and that's it. I can still do it. Like, you're not reconciled with God at this point. Whatever you think's happened, until you have entered into the relationship you were made for with God, you're not reconciled. And the gospel is, among other things, reconciliation. Romans 5, 1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we are reconciled with God. So until you are, in, in some sense, rightly related to God, you're not reconciled. And if you're not reconciled, I would say you're not. I come at it sideways like that. So what is your relationship with God? Does he get to tell you what to do? No. You're not reconciled with him. I mean, that was the fundamental breaking of the relationship in the garden where God said, hey, I'm going to tell you how to interpret this tree. I'm going to tell you how to order yourself in the garden. They said, no. 
You're not reconciled until that fundamental disjunct is reconnected. So that's probably how I'd come at it um, in, in thinking, but that, that those are the assumptions. I mean, words that we say so often as Christians, Lord, Christ, things like that, have meaning. And sure, if you, I mean, look at the Philippian jailer. It's the best example I can think of of this being hidden and tied up, because the Philippian jailer is the passage I'll get most often about how simple things are. We have to at first assume the Philippian jailer has some antecedent knowledge which makes perfect sense if Silas and Paul have been singing all day in his jail, because there's no mention of the death on the cross, substitutionary atonement, nothing. It's just believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But what happens? The Philippian jailer is about to kill himself. Okay, um, And when he hears Paul and Silas there, he falls prostrate. prostrate. I always get that mixed up. Um, very different things, very different things. He falls prostrate on the ground in front of them. And in the Greek, literally, he calls Paul and Silas the plural of kurios, kurioi, um, which unhelpfully is translated as sirs. Because in, when they respond a moment later, no, but believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to miss that wordplay in English if you don't translate it the same way. So when you fall in front of someone prostrate and you call them kurios, you're not calling them serious, you're calling them lords. This guy's saying, you saved my life, I'm presenting myself to you. And then they say, no, you, you do that to Jesus. Here's someone who is, is love for his family, holding him back, and he's about to kill himself. There's clearly nothing in this world that he's clinging to because he's about to kill himself. He's, in other words, as we've talked before about repentance is turning from. It's the emphasis or the focus on what you're turning from. And faith is what you're turning to in one act. Here is somebody turning from everything. Give him something to turn to. And they do. Turn to Jesus. Fall down in front of his feet. Um, so, I, so I don't think the Philippian jailer passage is nearly as um, simple or as... Um, I, think, I think it's pretty radical... Here's a guy so despairing of everything that he's about to kill himself. He falls down in front of their feet. I mean, he's the Roman jailer. These are their criminals, and he's falling on his face in front of them. They say, no, but believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. I mean, in the context, it's pretty, I think he gets it. I don't think there's anybody. They didn't tell him he has to recount the cost. Guy's about to kill himself. No need. But we also need a gospel that explains the rich young ruler who's showing up in three chapters, who Jesus is going to say, sell everything. And he left sad. That's the end of that. And, and so I th- I'm, I'm, I'm doing more. As you saw, I ran out of time this morning, Greg, so I'm just sort of using this as a, as a launch pad for all sorts of other thoughts. But in our desire to reduce the gospel down to one simple statement, four points, we got to be careful when our, our pithy, simplified gospel runs up against and has a hard time explaining other passages. The, the better thing to do is go back and study the gospel than try to twist, not that you have, uh, those passages to try to conform to it. And um, so, yeah, no, it's, it's, yeah, no, I just said, yeah, no. Awesome. Okay. Um, so that's my very long-winded answer here on your questions. I think it's tied up in categories like Lord and God. That if you think God means someone who you can consider obeying, you have a very different definition than God than I do. That, that would be, I guess, where I'd start. And Lord, same concept. Al Ostrander wants to chip in. He needs a microphone, though. No, 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 no. The chairman of the elders will be recorded for posterity. 
So I think you also can't forget that as the Spirit draws you, um, and if you're truly saved and redeemed and, and salvation takes place, yeah. I think, I really believe God puts that in your heart. Your eyes get opened and yeah. you, you recognize Him as Lord. Yeah. Now, whether you know everything that that means yet, that's right. a different story, but um, I think that, that, that comes with it very quickly. Um, yes. So, uh, but it's just, it's so interesting as you look through Scripture everywhere that, I mean, there is just nowhere where it, I mean, there's, there's a price to be paid. There's a cost to be counted. There's, you know, I just, I was thinking about the Ethiopian eunuch, even though it doesn't bring it out, but he's like, you know, do you understand what you've been reading? No, not really. He said, well, let me explain this to you. Yeah. And uh, he goes through and takes him through it from Isaiah, and, and you know, he's like, hey, where's some water? I want to be baptized, you know? Um, mm -hmm. So there's just, there's all that woven through. But again, if you just pick out one passage, you don't see that. Right. And, and I don't think, and I'm going to be clear here, I don't think every time we preach the gospel, every time we invite people to Christ, we need to, we must spell this out. Jesus certainly doesn't every time, right? Uh, but the frequency with which he does suggests that there should be many times when we do. So I don't want to make some law like you haven't presented the gospel if you haven't told people to count the cost. But I would be suspicious or I would think something's amiss if we've never done this. And you think of the context, you've got people who are caught up in some sort of hype about Jesus. He's popular, it's exciting. There's no cost yet. And he knows that almost all of them at the first whiff of persecution or disfavor are going to run and scatter. We live in a country where, what, 80% of the population claims to be Christian? I mean, you think this is a message we might need to... Yeah. Uh, you don't need to preach this in a country of persecution. It's obvious. It's just obvious. You don't need to preach count the cost in Iran. They're getting it. Um, but I think, I think in the West, where we've been able to be praised by men and wealthy and prosperous, and we've deluded ourselves for long enough that, no, you don't, there's no cost account. It doesn't mean anything. And so... Um, Passages like this can be wake up, but yeah, the, the Bible comes at the gospel from all sorts of angles. Um, one of the things that I, I, I meant to get to today that I'll have to get to next week is that I think the picture of the prodigal son, if you go to Luke, open up to Luke 15, um, and I'll try to connect our current text with what's coming. So Jesus, I'm arguing is offering, in, in fleshing out the parable from the end of four, from last week that we were looking at, the parable of the wedding feast where the owner of the, uh, the house throwing the banquet says, go out and invite people from the streets and then go out to the lanes and byways and highways. That, that's what we're seeing Jesus doing here. He's going to the riffraff. He, the reason why I say that is look how 15 ends, begins. The very next verse after our passage, how do people respond to Jesus' demands? Now the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to him. The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. This man invites sinners to his banquet. And then Jesus tells three parables in a row, all with the same point. Let me show you how much joy and gladness there is in heaven over one sinner who repents, the 99 who don't need repentance. And so... 
that's the connection of the flow of thought. Jesus drops this really hard call, and who responds? The riffraffs, the sinners, the tax collectors. And Pharisees stumble over it. And then Jesus tells them what heaven's perspective is on this. And the third example is the parable of the prodigal son. So to tie this up, I think in the prodigal son, we see a picture of somebody metaphorically responding to Jesus' call he just gave. I think that's the flow of the text. So what we're seeing, we're picturing is somebody responds rightly to what Jesus just said. Pick it up in, and you know the beginning, but pick it up in 1517. But when he came to himself, I love that phrase. It's like his eyes suddenly opened, or maybe you could say he suddenly had ears to hear. When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will also arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. Now, what happens here, if this is a picture of one sinner repenting, or to link it back to the end of 14, this is a picture of one person receiving and responding to what Christ just said. Suddenly his eyes open, and he realizes he's eating pig slop. And I think that when God, when God gives us eyes to see, we realize that all these things that are, we want to hold on to and cling to Garbage. And that's what the Apostle Paul says. I, even though I formally accounted this gain, I accounted this loss. Garbage, rubbish. And, and I think that also helps explain some people, because not everybody has a cost-counting conversion experience. I did. I know I, know I certainly did. Um, that when I began to understand what Jesus was saying, I, I had to look long and hard at my lifestyle and what I enjoyed doing. I enjoyed drinking and fornicating and smoking pot and partying and reveling and all those things. And I knew perfectly well that if I was going to follow Christ, I was going to have to at least try to stop doing that. And that was a pretty big cost for me. And for a couple of years, that kept me from Christ. And finally, as the Spirit convicted me of sin and righteousness and judgment, I became more afraid of God than I was afraid of my losing my pleasures. And, and so I talked to some people who've never had that experience. Um, I just, you know, I heard the gospel and Jesus was beautiful and I went to him. Um, and, and I think that there are some people who already know and have found by experience, maybe bitter experience through pain, through suffering, that this world doesn't have shiny, pretty, happy things. And for them, it is as simple as you're, you're in a pigsty and someone says, Hey, do you want to get out? Yes, I do. Others of us have to realize we're eating pig slop into the pigsty first. Others of us have to come to our senses. Our eyes have to open and realize that all these things that, that I'm clinging to, that I need, that I require, are, are quoted in Ecclesiastes like, like soap bubbles grabbing at the wind. And so, yeah, not everybody has that experience. But, I, but notice the prodigal does not return to his father with his wine cup in his hand and with the harlot on his shoulder. He leaves it behind. He comes empty-handed. He comes for, and he comes declaring no rights. I'll be your slave. I'll be your household slave. The Father in His great mercy makes him a son. Um, so, if the prodigal son pictures the repentance of a sinner in response to our passage, then I think that helps us understand that there is a sense in which, as Jesus said at the end, He was eyes, He was ears to hear, let Him hear. That when God gives grace and your eyes open, and you realize your state, and you realize your condition, and you realize what's going on around you, 
you're no longer clinging to this stuff. You're like the prodigal leaving the pig slot behind. Um, that's, that's, I think that's how Luke helps clarify what's going on here. So by grace, it's only by grace that we're going to see things this way. Otherwise, of course you hold on to your relationships, and of course you hold on to your stuff, and of course you hold on to your possessions, and of course you avoid suffering, unless you have ears to hear. And then then you, you might hit it. So in 15.1, it talks about tax collectors and sinners under sinners, would unclean be in there? Would that oh, absolutely. That what the Pharisees are saying? Oh, he's well, probably more like notorious or, sinner. Um, so, like publicly known that they. The last person who had this title was the woman who came in and washed Jesus' feet. Don't you know she's a sinner? And to get that title, she would almost certainly either be an adulteress or a prostitute. Okay. Um, these are notorious sinners. These are publicly known sinners. These are, um, I don't know if I can think of a better way to describe it, but these are the, the scum of society. These are people who, and remember, we've already seen in Luke, um, the Tower of Siloam fell. They thought they must have been worse. If you're poor, if you're dirty, if you're unhealthy, if you're sick, it's probably your fault. Even Jesus' disciples, when they saw the man born blind, who, who's sinned, this man or his parents? Somehow in utero, he sinned or something, you know? I see. Um, so they would consider, like, a blind person a sinner? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, you, you almost certainly did this to yourself. And that can be true sometimes. I mean, there's one encounter in John where Jesus heals uh, the man on the mat, and he says, do not sin again lest something worse happen to you, which seems to suggest, at the very least, this happened to him because of something he did do. And we, and we know from like Jonah and other passages, yeah, God can respond to sin with judgment. So it's not to say that God never judges sin with sickness or things. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that um, many of the Corinthian church are sick and dying because they're taking communion in a flippant, haphazard way. right? But to conclude, the op- that, to take that and flip it around, therefore every sickness and every poverty and every trial is because of sin, is to be Job's counselors and Job's friends, and that's not the case either. It might be. It might be the case. So sinners would be notorious sinners and probably very poor, either very poor people or very notorious sinners. Um, we don't get much further of a description. It seems to be a paired category. It first shows up in 5 when uh, the Pharisees grumble because Jesus goes to... Uh, Jesus goes to Levi's dinner party when he invites other tax collectors, and this man eats with tax collectors and sinners. And the Pharisees would recognize on some sense, of course, they're all sinners. They offer sin offerings, the Day of Atonement. I mean, it's not that they're saying they're sinless. They're just not sinners like these people are sinners. It's like sinner with a capital S, right. title. And that, that's the question yeah. I had. Was, yeah. it, was it the fair, Is it the Pharisee definition of sinners? That- it's kind of stating and inferring. Is that kind of it? Can you say that? I'm sorry. Can you say the Pharisees' that? definition of sinners, where it's like these are the riffraff, these are the people yeah. who inflicted it because it just happened to them, or yeah, yeah, like and it might saying. even be their own wickedness. I mean, the, the tax collectors, in a very real sense, were um, Uncle Tom's. They were they were turncoats. They, they had copped out, and they basically bought a tax franchise from Rome and were able to abuse and misuse and extort their countrymen for money. I mean, that, that uh, yes, there's something to dislike there. <laughs> yes, there is something wrong there. And so the tax collectors, 
I can see why their countrymen look down on them and why they despised them. Um, so it's not always that these people are innocent. Even the woman, go to, go to um, where's the woman who washes Jesus' hair? Is that six? I think it's six. Go to Luke 6. Um, nope, not Luke 6. Maybe, maybe seven. There it is. That was a chapter off. Okay. Now, she's, she's referred to um, as a sinner, right? But get the, get the text even further back. So um, the messengers from John the Baptist come, and, um, and Jesus speaks to them. In verse 23, blessed is the one who's not offended by me, right? So, so that's the answer he gives to the John the Baptist messengers. Hey, look at the works I'm doing, look at the signs I'm doing. Yes, I'm the Messiah. Yes, I know this doesn't fit your expectations. Trust me. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Then we get the people's response. Uh, verse 28, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with John's baptism. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose, um, rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. And then, 33, um, um, he rebukes them. And he says, you guys are like children who uh, are saying, hey, we were playing the happy game and you were sad, and we were playing the sad game and you were happy. Because they're com- when you always blame, them, if you don't like the message, you blame the messenger. So John the Baptist shows up and like, this guy's kind of weird. He's wearing camel hair. He's eating locusts. I mean, and Jesus shows up and, oh, this guy's a party animal. He goes and eats with tax collectors and sinners. And yeah. And you just basically, you're never happy. And then he says, um, look at 34. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by our children. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's household and reclined at table, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. So it's not even just what the Pharisees called her. Luke has just termed her this. The narrator has identified her as a sinner. So I'm saying she probably is either a prostitute or an adulteress, a known adulteress. And, and Jesus' treatment of her is not to say, no, 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 she's not a sinner. His point to the Pharisees is, you're all just as bad. It's not, no, she's really not as bad as you think she is. That's not Jesus' argument. Let me, let me show you what I mean. Um, so look at verse 44. And turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has um, wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you her sins, which are many. Jesus does not try to pretend, no, 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 she's not as bad as you think she is. Jesus freely admits her sins are many. Therefore, I tell you her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. He was forgiven little, loves little. The problem here is not that this woman is, is not as bad as you think she is. The problem is the Pharisees are way worse than they think they are. Um, in one sense, this woman's way worse than they even think she is. I mean, we don't really understand the magnitude of our sin against God. So the sinners were simply those people, I think, who, who were notorious, publicly known doing some sort of sinful occupation profession, and, and for a woman, the most likely candidate would be 
adultery or prostitution. Um, there might be others, but uh, that, that would seem to be most likely. But it seems to be a label assigned to them. So when Luke calls her a sinner, I do think it means something like one who was singled out or identified as or to fit that cast or place. And, and, and it's kind of like that Spurgeon quote, do not grumble when men think ill of you, for they don't think nearly bad of you enough. Uh, <laughs> um, and, and so the issue isn't like, oh, they called her a sinner. Yeah, she's a sinner. Her sins are many. But you are too. Is, is much more Jesus' approach to it than trying to say, oh, these people are much better than you think they are. I, I never see him minimizing their sin. It's more, you don't realize that you're on the same playing field because he talks to the Pharisees than that. What Go. does she love in 47? Why does she love? For what? For she loved much. What does she love? Him. Him. Because he forgave her sins. Yeah. Yes. There's, there's been some previous encounter either with John the Baptist or with Jesus that we don't know about, and we're seeing the love. I mean, it's important you read this text properly. It's not that she's forgiven because she's doing this stuff. The love comes out of her forgiveness. She loves much because she's been forgiven much. Um, and so she has already been forgiven in some previous point in time, and now in her love and adoration for Jesus, she comes in and just starts weeping and wiping his feet and kissing his feet. And you see her great love for him. Because she's she willing to, where it comes she, from. and she's willing to do something scandalous. She's willing to shame herself. She barges into a Pharisee's dinner party and starts groveling at his stinky feet. I mean, he's, you walk around in the Middle East with sandals on. And Jesus said he didn't get a washing, so that's going to be funky. Um, yeah. And she wipes his feet. I mean, think of, think of the humility and the self-abasement. And to do it in front of a bunch of Pharisee men who are all going to be going, ooh. You know, I mean, she doesn't think about that for a moment. She doesn't care. This is the Lord. This is him. Here he is, the one who forgave me. And she's just overflowing her heart. Uh, I, I think we see even there a picture of the love and the loyalty that breaks every other thing into second place, you know, into a distant second place. So... When it says, but he who's forgiven little loves little, so there is some forgiveness for the Pharisees, but they don't realize it. I think that's a rebuke. I think that's a rebuke. I think that's a rebuke. Okay. I don't don't think. I mean, it's hopeful with this Pharisee uh, for a couple of reasons. One, Jesus doesn't pronounce woes upon him. Mm -hmm. And Jesus calls him by name. He addresses him by name. Verse 40, Simon, I have something to say to you. He's very civil with him. Um, and we don't know how it ends with Simon, but Simon certainly isn't a believer at this moment because why, um, the text tells us verse 39. Now, when the Pharisees saw the man who had invited, when the Pharisee who had invited them saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman it is who touched him for she is a sinner. He hasn't Mm -hmm. even made up his mind. Is Jesus a prophet? He certainly doesn't believe Jesus is the Messiah. Right. So at this moment in time, this is not a forgiven person. Mm-hmm. So when Jesus makes the contrast, it's not... Okay, he's only forgiven little if he really has little sins. Yes. And he doesn't have little sins. That's true. So he's not forgiven little. But Jesus is assuming his standard. It's kind of like when he says, I only came to, to call the sick and heal mm-hmm. the sick. He's not saying that they're not sick. What he's saying is because you think you're not sick. You're not listening to me. And because you think your sins are little, you only pay me little respect. 
So he's wrong in thinking that his sins are little. Therefore, he's not forgiven. Okay. If he, it would be possible if he really had little sins that Jesus could mean your little sins have little forgiveness. But that's not what's going on. It's, it's I'm assuming your perspective and showing you that your self-righteousness is why you don't value me. That's, that's what he's saying. As the woman did. That's you okay. got it. You got it. Okay. Al, oh, Al and Elsa. Matt's, Matt's uh, going to cure it. I just had a couple oh. comments. Oh, even okay, go, go, go. Okay. Uh, I just wanted to make a couple comments. I think in this country, maybe in other places too, uh, the gospel message isn't given with the law first. Oh. And people are like, well, you have a bad marriage, come to Christ and they'll give you a better marriage instead of, no, you're a yep. wretched sinner who deserves the, the wrath of God. Mm. And so when they, they, they're saved, they don't know what they're actually saved from sometimes. And it's the Holy Spirit that works with the law and then the gospel. Yeah. And this one, um, I just got done with a series at our church. It's the gospel clarity and it talks about the gospel being two parts. The first part is I'm a wretched sinner. The second part is I have an awesome Savior in Christ. <laughs> and and yeah. you need both parts. Uh, the other thing is, when I look at disobedience, I think the Bible's pretty clear. It, it's a lack of belief. Mm. And even in your, your uh, example in the garden, um, what did Satan do? He was trying to get Eve to not believe God. Did right. God really say and we look at the laws like it's it's almost a punishment, which in our flesh it is. I mean, it condemns us, but God gave it for our good, and so we're not believing that the law is for us as believers for our right. own good. And like you mentioned about how sometimes He brings stuff in our lives, but He means it for good for us. Right. And for me, the way I deal with that, um, whether it's willful or not, is to look back to the gospel of what he's done for me. It's mm. like we love because God first loved us. Mm. And the book I'm reading actually references Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, of how we're adopted, we're holiness producing, we're assurance affected. Mm. Um, it's just rooted in, in what he did for us. Mm. So I guess that's all I let me, let me just bounce off of one thing you said that I, I mean, I agree with everything you've said, but I want to express again is, yeah, our, our belief system always fuels our actions. Every action we take flows out of beliefs and thoughts and values and judgments. And every action of obedience stems out of faith, trusting God. It's the point I was trying to get to when I gave the illustration of Abner in the dentist office. At the end of the day, will he... I mean, it's weak, it's terrified, it's scared, uh, it's, it's whimpering. Will he trust me that I know what I'm talking about? Or will he, in effect, say, no, I know better than you do, Dad. This, this is not okay. Uh, and so it's going to be rooted in his, I mean, I can't, I mean, I suppose he's old enough that I could explain it to him, but you get kids young enough when they go to the doctor and need a shot or something, and you can't explain it to them. At the end of the day, it's just, I'm Dad and I love you, trust me. Will you trust me? Is that okay? And we're now, it gets down to faith. It gets down to what do you believe? 
Um, do you believe that God is God, that Jesus is his son, that he is the Lord, he's been given the name above every name? Do you believe that he loves you and has your best interest at heart? Do you believe you can trust him? Or, like Adam and Eve in the garden, do you need to look out for number one? And that's the whole serpent's pitch, is questioning whether or not you can trust God. Are his motives pure, really? Or is he keeping something good from you? It'd probably be better for you to make sure you don't get ripped off here. Make sure you don't get taken advantage of. Make sure you don't get walked all over here. You, you need to look out for yourself. God's holding something good back from you. That's the entire sales pitch of the fall. That's the entire sales pitch that plunged this world into death and cancer and dying. What someone's saying, hey, I'm not sure you can really trust God to look out for your best interests. I think you might need to look out for yourself. So, of course... Of course, being reconciled to God means getting rid of that thinking and back to, I can trust him, and he is trustworthy, and I, I will um, trust that he means me good. Um, so the thought that you could be reconciled with God while you're still, in effect, thinking and believing like Adam and Eve in the garden, yeah, he's, he's God's taking good stuff from me, and I'm not going to let him. <laughs> is, is, is when you put it, frame it like that, it's ludicrous. But that's what we do all the time. When I, when I get in an argument, when I'm mean to my wife and I'm angry and I speak harshly to her, it's because at that moment I believe I'm a lord. And lords become sore in their wrath. And we punish those who oppose us, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I've been believing a lie. That's why when we confess sin, um, the word confess in English and in Greek means to agree with. Uh, in Greek it's homo. Logos, to say, to say the same thing. And the assumption is, while I was sinning, I was disagreeing with God. See, God says I'm supposed to love my wife like Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her, and die for her. And in that moment, I was saying, heck no, she can die for me. She can serve me, right? And I start acting like that, because I believe that. And then when I become convicted, and I repent, what do I do now? I confess with God. I agree with God. I say with God, God, I ought to have loved my wife and served her like Christ who gave himself up, or I didn't do that. But I agree with you now that that is what's good, and that is what's true, and that's what I need to do. That's what confession means. And so the, even the concept of confess only makes sense if you weren't previously disagreeing with God. Which gets back to belief systems. What do you believe? So in every moment of sin... We're believing a lie. React on it. So, yeah, there's a direct connection between what you believe and what you do. There's an unbreakable connection between what you believe and what you do in any moment. Uh, and, and one of the lies, I think, that we've bought into in, in the West is that what you believe and what you do can be completely divorced. And post-modernity post certainly hasn't helped that situation. Because we've got people walking around with like absolutely contradictory beliefs. It made no sense, don't fit together, and they're cool with that, that's fine. And so we're used to, like, here's what I believe. And, and that's why I think again and again and again and again and again, Jesus will point to the fruit the tree bears to identify its nature. Because he's assuming that connection between root and fruit. That as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. You're not what you think you are, but what you think, that you are. You know? And all of your actions and all of your things you say and do, for out of the heart come the words of the mouth, right? Um, for out of the heart come evil deeds. And your heart is where you're thinking and valuing and reasoning and planning and plotting and, and wanting. It all comes out of there. Um, so, I mean, and I was the person who thought I believed in Jesus, yet every action I bore denied him. 
And what I'm getting from Jesus again and again and here and in other passages is, why do you call me Lord, Lord, not do what I say? Is the whole point is it's a farce. It's a joke. You're not. Look at the fruit you bore. Look what you're doing. Um, so, okay. Let's go to Al, then Elsa. I haven't forgotten. Elsa. Oh, wow. I'm good. Um, I answered Elsa's question without even knowing it. Five uh, points for me. Just uh, returning to your central point yeah. of the message this morning, um, I just also couldn't help but thinking about Matthew 28 and the Great Commission. And, mm. and you know, in verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them mm. to observe all that I commanded you. Yeah. So a couple things there, and I'll, I don't know if I can explain it well, but you know, it doesn't say, well, just... You know, go make believers or go make Christians out of them, and that's all it says. No, right. it says make disciples. Well, what's a disciple? A disciple is somebody that actually follows, that actually does what they're supposed to do. Yeah. Um, so it, it's difficult to separate out, for me anyway, mm. uh, salvation and um, following mm. and discipleship and lordship. It, 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 it all comes as a package. Yeah. Obviously here, these people didn't all know what all they were supposed to observe. Um, they had to be taught, mm. which is what making a disciple would, mm. would entail. But uh, So anyway, just, uh, yeah, couldn't well, help but think well, about that passage well, this morning. Well, no, that's wonderful. I just had to know that's wonderful. Wow. <sighs> a friend of mine who listens to this says frequently, I'll be agreeing with someone and go, no, 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 yeah. And there's a perfect example where I, I completely agree with Alan. I'm like, no, 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 yes, no. Yes. Think about this. You're not involved in the Great Commission if you're not calling people to obey Christ. Are you? That's the Great Commission. Go into the world and make decisions. Go into the world and, and get people to make decisions. No, it's, you want to really translate the Greek. It's discipleize the nations. That's the commission. How do you do that? You baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and you teach them to obey or observe all that I've commanded. If we're not actively teaching people that the living, living risen, wow, I just mix, I'm, I've been up since three guys, so I'm tired, that the risen Christ deserves, requires, and demands your obedience. We're not being faithful to the Great Commission if we're not saying that. It's as simple as that. He told us to teach them to observe all that he commanded, and if we think that's optional, we'll just go tell them to make a decision and worry about the other stuff later. We're not being faithful to the Great Commission. We're going to make disciples, not decisions. And, and Al is completely right. It's really hard to parse those things out. If you go back to Luke 15, part 14, part of what makes it difficult is look at the prepositions that Jesus uses um, in, in these two conditional statements. In verse um, 16, 26, sorry. If anyone comes to me, Verse 27, come after me. So Jesus applies the same conditions both to coming to him and coming after him. Now those are two different things, right? Coming to Christ, I think, speaks of salvation. Coming after Christ, following him, is, probably speaks to sanctification. And yet Jesus blends these things together. If anyone comes to me and da-da-da-da-da, he cannot be my disciple. If anyone does not... Come after me, you cannot be my disciple. It's hard to parse out where the one ends, the other begins. 
And part of that is because the same gospel that saves will sanctify it. If you read my article in The Messenger, um, that's exactly what I deal with, is, is in our desire to be reductionistic and get our gospel to fit on a postcard, we uh, have ripped parts of it apart. And the, the New Testament speaks of us have been saved, we're being saved, and we will be saved. And it means different things by those things. No mistake, but but the same gospel that saved you is saving you. And you will be saved by that same gospel in the future. And it's, it's one gospel, and it, you've been saved, you're being saved, you will be saved. And we just turn that into, you want to not go to hell? And, yeah, reductionism. And not that people don't get saved that way, I'm sure they do, but I think it's equally likely that people, you know, get into something they have no idea what they're doing. They have no idea what they're getting themselves into. I mean, think, let me, think of it this way. If this isn't the case, then church discipline makes no sense whatsoever. If, if, if we're going to tell somebody their refusal to obey Christ is the grounds by which we will exclude them from the covenant community, the grounds by which we will refuse to associate with them and warn them they stand in peril of hellfire, right? That's 1 Corinthians 5. Um, deliver such one over to Satan that their soul might be saved on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when we, when we excommunicate somebody, we don't do it that often, but when we excommunicate somebody, what we're saying is we have serious concerns that you're going to hell. Why? Because you solidly, persistently refuse to attempt to obey Christ. We don't discipline people who struggle. We discipline the people who say, nope, that's it, I'm not doing it, not giving it up. No way, Jose. How on earth can we do that if obedience to Christ was never on the table on the entrance door? In other words, think of somebody. Let's, just, let's flip it around. Let's say I'm wrong and the other position's correct. And so somebody comes up to you and they say, hey, I want to become a Christian, but I'm, I'm cheating on my wife. Is, do I have to stop that or can I keep that up? And you say, no, no, this is the exact example I got into with the guys at Word of Life. And they'd say, that's a non-issue. You're mixing categories. We'll talk about that later. Don't worry about that. What matters is, who do you think Jesus is? What do you want him to do for you? So they wouldn't be libertine saying, yeah, go enjoy that. They'd just say, that has nothing to do with this. Don't worry about it. Let's talk about Jesus and who you think he is. Do you want him to save you? So that guy asked that question. And he says, yeah, I do think Jesus is the Savior. And I do think he died on the cross for my sins. And yes, I would like him to forgive him. And they, they baptize him that day and they welcome him into the body. And two weeks later, they excommunicate him because he's cheating on his wife. And he says, wait a second. I asked you when I was about to become a Christian if this was an issue or not. And you said, don't worry about it. How is it you're telling me I'm in danger of going to hell and you can't fellowship with me because I won't let this go? It makes no sense. It's contradictory, which is part of the reason why most churches don't do discipline. It only makes sense if, it's, if you're saying, is, do you want a free salvation? Do you want to follow after me? Which is why, if you get back to the relationship categories, just like the child who says, I don't want to obey you, you need to communicate to the child what you're saying is you don't want to be my son or daughter. Is that really what you want? And the person who says, I don't want to obey Christ. I want this. I love this. I can't give this up. You're saying you don't want to be a disciple. You're saying you don't want to be reconciled with God. That's what you're saying. And eventually, we're going to have to treat you like that's what you want. Does that make sense? That connection makes sense? That when a person, and again, there's all the difference in the world between someone who struggles and struggles and struggles with sin 
but they're aiming for this mark. And the person who says, you know what, I, I'm tired. This relationship's too important. I'm not giving it up. I, 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 the, I had a friend of mine back in New England. He uh, just told me he was in a difficult marriage. One day he says, you know what, I don't care. I'm tired of being walked over. I'm tired of being someone's carpet. God doesn't want me to be a, uh, you know, or someone's rug to walk on. Um, and he divorced his wife. And to his credit, he at least recognized that in doing so, he was refusing to be a disciple. And simultaneously, pretty much walked away from his faith. I mean, to his credit, he had the consistency to recognize one or the other. Um, that he was saying, no, I'm done, this is too much, uh-uh. And uh, it was heartbreaking. One of, my, one of my better friends from childhood. And at the end of the day, who calls the shots? We, who's, or put it really simply, at the end of the day, who's God? Me? What I think is best? What I want? What I value? Or him? And this is why it gets back to the first question, we're out of time, but it gets back to the first question Greg asked, which is, how does this fit? I think it fits into words like God and Lord. Because um, if I get to call the shots, who do I think is God? Who do I think is the authority? Me. Me. Anyway, we'll be in this passage for at least one more week, maybe two, so there'll be more time to ask questions. Right now we've got a picnic to get to. So thank you for your time and your attention, and I will see you at the picnic. God bless.